Shut up and sit down. Welcome. Welcome back to In the Context of Empire. This is your host, Matt McKenna. John Lancaster is not joining me today, but I am very fortunate to be joined by Justin Poder. Justin is the founder of the Anti-Empire Project, and he is the host of the Anti-Empire Project podcast. He is the author of America's Wars on Democracy in Rwanda and the DR Congo, and The Path of the Unarmed. He is an associate professor at York University's Faculty of Environmental and Urban Change in Toronto. And I'm really grateful for you to join me today. Welcome to the show, Justin. Oh, thank you, uh, Matt. I was honored to be invited, honored to be a part of this in the context of Empire Podcast. And when I looked you guys up, I saw that, you know, you're, I mean, I would be in really good company. And I really like what you guys are doing. So it's it's very much my pleasure to be part of this project of yours. Yeah, the admiration is mutual. And I'm a big fan of your <laughs> podcast as well. And we'll, we'll get into some of the work that I've seen you put out. And it's really g- great stuff, though. And I, I do feel like we're pulling on similar threads here. So mm-hmm. let's get into it. But before we even do that, uh, can you tell us a little bit about your background, specifically with regards to how did you develop such an interest in anti-imperialism, and I, I guess we could extend that to anti-war and generally mm-hmm. more left-wing politics. I grew up in Toronto. My parents are from Kerala, India. Kerala is um, a state in India, small state for Indian standards, which means like 30 million people live there. Um, and uh, it's, you know, traditionally, historically, they're often elect communist governments in Kerala. So they have, um, you know, pretty high literacy rates and pretty good health care outcomes, despite not being the richest province in terms of, I mean, richest state in terms of per capita GDP. So there's like a there's like a paradox where lots of people from Kerala who are called Malayalis, they actually leave and they send, they work because they've been educated uh, in Kerala, but there's not a lot of ways to make a lot of money in Kerala. So they travel to, mainly to the, to the Gulf, like to Saudi Arabia, Qatar, Kuwait, Abu Dhabi, places like that, and send money back. And that's kind of like the economic engine is educated exports. So my parents came to Canada in the 70s. And, you know, I I suppose my father went, (laughs) my father went to school at the university that I work at now. So I didn't go to this. He worked, he went to a school at York. And York University is this huge university, but it's, it's got a reputation because it's like this, it's got like 50,000 students, but a lot of the students are people who were the first in their family to go to university. Um, you know, it's like the whole point of York was to try to create a, a university education for people who otherwise wouldn't be able to have one. And, you know, my dad sort of, my dad was already fairly educated because he came uh, from Kerala via Germany. But, you know, that was the kind of the promise of York. And a lot of the, the students, I mean, a lot of the professors in the 70s were actually people fleeing the Vietnam, you know, people fleeing the draft, right? Um, a lot of professors in Canada uh, are like draft dodgers from the Vietnam era who didn't want to go and fight in Vietnam. And they, you know, often had anti-war interests. So 
You know, I think some of that stuff, some of the stuff he learned in class, some of the stuff he was reading, I remember seeing on his bookshelf when I was growing up in the 80s, like a book called The Pillage of the Third World. And, you know, I think I just absorbed a lot of that just from from that background. When I was starting university, and my first year in 1995, I went to the library and I was just really interested in um, reading like what, what, like, I didn't know what I wanted to read, but I knew I wanted to like learn about the world, right? So I was like wandering through the shelves of like what professors had put on reserve for their classes. And I came across this book called Deterring Democracy by Noam Chomsky. And I was like, deterring democracy? What the hell is that? What does that mean? Like who would deter democracy, right? So then I picked that up and it was one of those things like I was, you know, you picture like 19 or 20, I guess it was 20 years old or something. And I just, you know, I had the freedom because, you know, I was living with my parents, but the university is an hour away by bus and subway. And I like sat in the library until it closed almost. And I was just reading and I came home super late. And and then I did it again. And then I like, so Chomsky was like really important for me uh, when I was, uh, you know, basically becoming a young adult. So it was... Then I just read everything that he wrote. Um, and then I tried to find where he w- was, what he was doing now. Um, and the internet was fairly new, right? It was like, you know, 95, 96, 97, 98. Those were my undergraduate years. And I discovered this Z, Z magazine, Znet, which he mentioned in this lecture that I found on, on the internet. And then I um, started volunteering with, I just approached them and, Znet is an interesting story too, or Z Magazine, because it's like founded by students of Chomsky's from this from MIT in the '60s. So they were like anti-war movement leaders from the '60s in Boston that went on to create South End Press uh, Publishers and then Z Magazine. And so I I started volunteering with them and learned how to do some HTML stuff and started around 1998. Um, and then from then for the next, I don't know, 10, 10 or 12 years, I was, you know, doing various things with and for Z and Z magazine. So I was always kind of close to that project. Um, the founder of Z is now uh, running a podcast, too. It's called Revolution Z, which I would recommend. It's Michael Albert's Revolution Z. Um, he's had Chomsky on uh, at least once. So I guess... You know, if you want to look, if I guess I would say my background as far as like working on this stuff and reading about it and writing about it has been basically working with and through Z. So I have an American, a pretty strong American connection in that sense, because it Z is like an American left. You know, there were the whole time in Toronto, there are some pretty cool left wing uh, and anti-war organizing that went on and that I I was plugged into uh, during the movement against the war in Iraq in 2003, which was big, and the war on terror, the so-called war on terror since 2001. But I was always primarily connected to it through Z, through working on Znet. So that's where where it all began. (laughs) That's really interesting. And you, like many people, have been inspired by Noam Chomsky, myself included. 
and I love Noam Chomsky, especially his writing, of course, but also just going on YouTube and watching old Noam Chomsky yeah. videos. Like you mentioned the war on terror. There's like a video yeah. I just watched where it's like he talks about terrorism. It's like, well, what about Western terrorism? What if we started including mm-hmm. state terrorism in that category? Exactly. Um, yeah, and unfortunately, Chomsky seems to get more crap from a lot of people on the left these days than I think he deserves. <laughs> Um, like, come on, the guy's 92 years old. He grew up, you know, he was, his adulthood, his entire adulthood was basically the Cold War. And people are yeah. saying he's not left-wing enough, which, fine, but, like, acknowledge his contributions. He's put in his, he's put in, he's paid his dues, you know? That's a, yeah, that's, yeah. <laughs> when, when, I'll criticize him when I've done as much as he's done. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, and I, before we move on again, yeah, something I, I'll have to have you back on to talk about, because we certainly don't have time today with all the stuff we got to cover, but... Kerala is a really interesting place, and I've heard, now you've talked about it, uh, Vijay Prashad has talked about it quite a bit, and that is such an interesting uh, socialist or communist experiment within India, the yeah. much larger, not communist, to say the least, country, and I'd love to get your opinion on that at a future date. Yeah, I mean, that the, the, that's the limitation, you know, of what, what Kerala is able to do is, you know, they're working in a context where <laughs> they're definitely not uh, support and in fact, you know, constitutionally, I always make this point: um, India has the constitutional power to oust a state government. I don't think you have that in the U.S. I I don't know if it's ever. I don't think they have it in Canada either. But the the president can basically out like just say this government is out and we're going to rule this state directly under so-called president's rule. So, uh, and that's happened multiple times in Kerala when the communists were elected, including the very first time the communists were elected in the 50s. So, yeah, <laughs> it's not an easy context by any means. Right, and it, I be, you correct me if I'm wrong, it's also the only Christian-dominated area of India, or at least with a significant Christian minority? Yeah, it's got a significant minority, but it's, it's, it's still majority Hindu. Um, there's about as many Christians as there are Muslims, actually. I think it's... Last time I looked, it was like 60% Hindu, 20% Christian, 20% Muslim. But it is like, it's a different kind of, um, it's got a different history, right? Because it's been, it's a a port, you know, the port of Cochin uh, is like kind of part of that Indian Ocean economy. It's like Chinese traders, Western traders. So there's like a Jewish um, synagogue there from the 12th century or something. And yeah, and there's Christians going back. The, the, some Christians in Kerala say that they became Christian um, when one of Jesus's apostles came, St. Thomas the Apostle. So they're not, they, they don't claim to be uh, converts from the Portuguese colonial times. They claim to be like original Christians. Yeah, well, so yeah it's a fascinating yeah, it is. Uh, and so moving us forward up, you have this great project, the Anti-Empire Project, along with the corresponding podcast. Can you tell us a little bit about that, the the origins of the project, the origins of the podcast? What kind of content do you put out? What kind of, con- what kind of message are you hoping people take out of mm-hmm. that project? Yeah, so it was... It- in fact, it's another thing that started with Z. So uh, when when blogs started getting becoming cool around 2000, you know, early 2000s, 2002, three, four, Michael Albert said, "Oh, we've got to we've got to do a bunch of blogs for Z." So what do you want your blog to be called? And I didn't know. And I was like, Michael himself had this cool uh, book called "The Stop the Killing Train," and it was this image 
where he said, you know, if everyone who died of starvation and preventable disease, uh, you know, every year, instead of, you know, being buried was just piled onto trains, the train would stretch around the world within, you know, a few years, and it would go to the moon and back within 10 years, or it was just this very, like, disturbing image of like, the scale of, you know, mortality because of imperialism and, and, uh, and, and capitalism. And so, and war. And so I, I was like, just call it the killing train. I'll just, I'll just run the killing train blog for Z. And then, um, and then, I don't know, I'll, m- most of the bloggers stopped blogging. <laughs> and it was like, uh, I'll just, r- I'll just spin it off and run it on my own, uh, website. And then, uh, out of the Z context, the name kind of stopped making sense. So then I had to come up with a new name. And it was sort of like lots of candidates, but ultimately it was I was trying to figure out what it was that I do. And it, and it, the only, the best thing, the thing that made the most sense was to say, you know, it's the anti-empire, it's an anti-empire project. It's And and the reason I didn't, I didn't want to call it anti-imperialism because I wanted to specify that I am talking about one empire. I'm not talking about, you know, this phenomenon of imperialism that Lenin described in the 1910s of, or, you know, 1900s of um, different imperial powers. Like, I wanted to emphasize that this is a kind of a unipolar system. This is a single empire. And what I'm trying to do is, uh, you know, point out the propaganda uh, of this empire. And, uh, and that's, that's what it's about. Mainly it's about, it's, I mean, there's lots of uh, talking about anything political or economic is talking about the empire really, uh, which is why you guys are in the context. You're talking in the context of empire. (laughs) Yeah. But, you know, I, I, I guess if I, you know, if I were to say like, what's the difference between, you know, uh, a project like the socialist project, which we have a, a really good group in Toronto called the Socialist Project, and they put out stuff. It's much bigger than me, <laughs> um, and they put out uh, what they call the Bullet, um, and they have all these different educational initiatives. And so it's like, and I, I respect that a lot. But I think I I would emphasize the propaganda aspect of the empire more than um, more than probably someone who's looking at the mechanisms of unequal exchange or like looking at it from a political economy perspective, which I do, I do that too. And I'm getting more and more into that. But even there, when I do it, I kind of try to take up propaganda, like look at economics as propaganda or look at history or economic history and the propaganda aspects of it. Well, looking at propaganda, that's very Chomsky-esque, to say the least. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And uh, I've really enjoyed listening to some of your recent episodes where you're you're categorizing and giving details to some of the resistance to empires. Like, I think you had an episode about the Boxer Rebellion recently. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you, 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 you catalog all these imperial actions as well. Like, I heard recently, you had a, well, maybe a couple of months ago, you had an episode about the Mexican-American War. and. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, it's great. I, I definitely encourage people to listen. And uh, in terms of your view on empire, I think we largely share the same view. I mean, uh, we'll get into, like, why we need to focus our energies on criticizing the U.S. empire. But I'm curious, do you see Western imperialism as a continuum that's basically un, unchanged other than the, the lead yeah. player, you know, where you had 
the European powers, mostly Great Britain and France, the most dominant empires in the 19th century with the continuum into the 20th, 20th and 21st century with the lead being taken by the United States. Do you see that as one kind of long strand of Western imperialism? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because all of those things um, that you could describe as being what an empire is about, the regime of property, the regime of private property, the ideology of neoliberalism, the political economy going back to, you know, Ricardo and Malthus and John Stuart Mill, uh, you know, the idea of, um, you know, the racism, the idea that this is like a white, you know, white supremacy, that the world is organized into a hierarchy with white race on top and black at the bottom and various Asian and um, indigenous nations being arrayed in between uh, the, um, and then the propaganda system. The whole idea that, you know, governments and empires uh, are legitimate to deceive people in the service of their, you know, racial property, cap, you know, capital, corporate, uh, profit-making ends. Uh, and then the attitude towards nature, the attitude towards women, all of those elements are uh, come down directly from the British Empire uh, to the U.S. Empire today. And Canada and Australia and New Zealand, you know, the so-called Five Eyes countries, um, uh, those are um, direct, uh, no, you know, I don't even know if you could call them descendants. They are doing what the British Empire did. And then the U.S., you know, the U.S. has changed the emphasis a little bit, but the the relationship between the British Empire and the U United States um, in the 19th century, it was not great at some points, for sure, but it was always, you know, they always understood each other as um, racial allies, uh, you know, us against the world. Um, you know, there's a story that I told in the Opium War episode of, of on the podcast uh, where they came under, you know, there were some American gunboats and some British gunboats and they came under fire uh, on a river in, in China in, I don't know, 1859 or something, 1858 or 59. And, and the American guy said, you know, we may have our disagreements, but damn it, blood is thicker than water, you know? And, uh, you know, and so they, you know, they took action to save their racial comrades um so yeah that's I, I definitely see that as a as a continuity yeah and they they're literally still working together you know the war in iraq the war in yeah. afghanistan it's the U u.s with their junior partner great britain doing yeah. the dirty work yeah so you mentioned race and i'll be quick on this but because i've mentioned this before in the podcast the reason we started this project it's the blog and the podcast was because john and i were were attending a lot of the George Floyd protests last spring and, mm -hmm. you know, we were reading up on it and then we both kind of collectively said, why are we not including a conversation about imperialism here? Because as you said, it's yeah. imperialism, specifically American and British imperialism, cannot occur without a racist element. Yeah. I mean, what's more racist than deciding that yeah. th these people who are predominantly non-white around the world are not fit to make decisions for themselves? And, you know, I, I did feel yeah. like, you know, that I wasn't hearing a lot of that. You know, people are going out and, you know, they're buying that book, White Fragility. People are yeah. talking about race and police brutality, but there was very little conversation about 
capitalism exactly. and imperialism. Exactly. White, white fragility, it's, it's, it's really bad in the end because it makes it seem like it's some kind of psychological problem located in white people um, as opposed to a, a structure that, um, you know, kind of constrains what anybody can do. Like if, if there's a, if, if black people are um, not in the same side of town, and are methodically denied uh, empl- and, and, and you know the same opportunities in every stage of their lives, whether it's like education, um, you know, uh, jobs, where that you know all these practices of bank lending and redlining uh, that that people face, right? And then then you add the police, like the fact that white people have no idea what black people face in terms of police. They don't have any idea. So then it's like, it's not a failure of empathy in that sense. Like, you don't have the same experience. You're not gonna, like, you're not gonna be able to, you're, you're gonna, th- when you see a cop, you're not gonna see uh, someone who's like targeting you if you're white, right? But if you're, you know, if you're black, that's like, it. Ju- it just has a totally different meaning historically practically and so the idea that you know this is like a psychological problem that can be fixed by taking a series of workshops is actually like totally a diversion into the wrong direction for what needs to happen for you know a anti-racist program to succeed in the US so i i just i just yeah i just think that white fragility stuff is a real a real diver- diversion uh, you know, and and ultimately, it's also like the the George Floyd issue, for example, is a has a lot to do with police power. Like police have power. Um, they they're not you're not able to prosecute. They have like this thing called qualified immunity. They have a range of powers and immunities and legal protections and and protections from the consequences of what they do that, you know, ordinary, you know, human beings cannot, do not have. And so, uh, again, like the, you know, people, people who talk about white fragility are not talking about police power and the fact that police have far too much power, especially over, uh, black, you know, black communities. Um, so yeah, like when I talk, when I talk about the police issue, I always say like, I'm not, it's easy to be, um, anti-racist in some abstract sense. Like, I want to know what you think about police power. I want to know whether you, you know, whether you're in favor of police having a whole lot less power over people's lives. Cause that's a much harder thing to say, right? That's a much, much harder conversation to have, uh, in Canada or the U.S., yeah, and of course, you know, as far as it goes, the the idea that white people, including myself in this, of course, the should be more aware of their privilege, I'm 100% for that. Yeah, but, of course, of course. But, you know, when we talk about the direct connection between U.S. militarism and U.S. empire and how it can't yeah. function without racism, you know, we're having uh, Christine Ahn from Women Cross the DMZ, she's coming yeah. on later this week, and she wrote a great article about how, you know, this anti-Asian racism in the United States, it is not coincidental that it's at the same time as the United States is ramping up uh, tension yeah. with China. And, you know, you can't, 
of course, the United States is an extremely anti-Asian racist yeah. place because, you know, how could you conduct the Vietnam War, the Korean War, the Indonesian genocide? You know, I can list examples yeah. forever here without a racist element. But we'll yeah. move and on. And then have some workshop. Like, you can't workshop that away, right? Like, you, you can't. You can't be running these wars and these campaigns and and simultaneously have workshops about, um, you know, and so and like you know, like the the for profit prison system in the U.S. and the way that, um, you know, the way that black people are funneled through this whole system for for the profit of um, these for profit carceral systems. Like, you can't run that and then have workshops. You can't workshop that. Like, you can't be running that system and then address racism through workshops. Like, yeah, it's not going to... Totally agree. Yeah. So, Justin, the reason you came to my attention is, I forget who retweeted it, but you wrote this awesome thread. I think it was maybe late summer, early fall this past year. And you wrote about this topic that John and I have talked about on the show before. John and I have some minor disagreements about this, but my general thesis has been we are not going to use this show to talk about the alleged crimes of official U.S. enemies. And I could not have encapsulated my feelings on this better than you did, because you explained pretty much what I was thinking, but you put it into very concrete words. So I want to ask you a few questions about this thread, and I'll read some short sections of it as well, and maybe you can expand on it. So, So the thread is about why, if you're a U.S. citizen, especially if you consider yourself a dissenter or a leftist, and I, I think you'd probably apply this to Canadian citizens and British citizens, anyone in the West, why it is that you should not spend your time talking about official U.S. enemies and their crimes, especially, I would add, if you're an educator. And so first, can you describe your overall view about, generally, when we speak about the United States official enemies, why should we not talk about the alleged abuses of those nations? So it's it all this is all Chomsky, right? <laughs> this all comes from Chomsky. But Chomsky has this thing where he talks about it in terms of what he calls it an elementary moral truism. So he's like, if it's bad for someone else to do, then it's bad for you to do. And if you're doing it, then talking about how someone else doing it is bad is not a moral act. So what does he mean by a moral act? He means that he means that you your speech uh, if your speech has some meaning. If you're cri- if you're criticizing a policy that you uh, or a, your a collective that you're a part of is engaged in, then that has the potential to change that policy. That is the point of your critique. The point of critique is to try to change something. So, okay, so if I'm in a group and I criticize something this group is doing that I'm a part of, then I'm trying to start a conversation about, hey, let's stop doing this. Um, If I'm a part of a group and I criticize something that happened in the distant past that was done by some other group that's being done by some other group now, well, I that speech that I have might have some effect in the world, but it's not going to have the effect of trying to get my group to stop that bad thing that we're doing. 
so like, okay, this is all fairly abstract, right? Um, but um, it easily maps onto, uh, pre, you know, everything that's going on today in terms of propaganda. So right now there's a China, China is committing genocide in Xinjiang. Okay, so that's the claim. And, uh, you know, everybody in America and Canada, the Canadian parliament issued a unanimous declaration that genocide is going on in Xinjiang. And it's like, so you have to ask yourself, like, is this parliament, first of all, against genocide? There's lots of evidence that it's not. I mean, this parliament has declared war on, uh, you know, the Northwest, you know, the Métis in the Northwest in, in the 19th century and sent troops and massacred people. Uh, this parliament has run a policy of starvation of indigenous nations, again, in the late 19th century, when they were starving uh, indigenous nations in Northwestern Canada in the 1870s. Um, the conservative party that was doing the starvation was criticized by the Liberal Party for spending too much on feeding the Indigenous nations that they were starving. And the Canadian Prime Minister at the time, John A. Macdonald, who's on our money and who of whom there are statues everywhere, uh, John A. Macdonald said, don't worry, we are doing the most, we are spending as little as possible by keeping the Indians on the edge of starvation. Um, so this, you know, this country got to where it is because of genocide. Um, this country supports the blockade against Venezuela. This country is selling billions of dollars in weaponry to Saudi Arabia, which is blockading Yemen, massacring you know civilians through bombing, starving people to death. In which Yemen. you could argue is genocide, I, and we've which had people I on the show yeah. have said. Which I Shereen certainly Al would argue. said that when she was on our show. Yeah. yeah, I would certainly argue that's genocide. This country is an unconditional supporter of Israel, which is blockading Gaza, practicing vaccine apartheid. Um, you know, the, the, the social democratic left-wing party, the NDP, they're called, their leader was asked about um, the Israel-Palestine conflict a couple of days ago, and all he was able to blurt out was, uh, I'm against anti-Semitism, as if the blockade of Gaza you know, as you know, as if Israel is blockading uh, over a million Palestinians in Gaza because they're anti-Semitic or something. Like it's so. Does does this country, does this parliament have anything to say about genocidal policy in Yemen by the Saudi people? Yeah, sure they do. They sell them weapons to do it. Um, Israel doing it to the Palestinians. Sure they do. They sell them weapons, provide diplomatic cover. They participate in it. Uh, Venezuela, they're participating in the blockade, recognizing the government. So it's certainly not genocide that Canada has a problem with. So what then is this about? And if you're, if you're saying, you know, we're against here in Canada, the fact that something bad is happening in China. Well, <laughs> um, maybe you are, but if what do you hope to achieve now? What do, what do you, you think that if Canadians speak firmly to the Chinese government, the Chinese government is going to say, oh, you're right, you know, thanks for that declaration. We see the light now. Or do you think that you're just doing some kind of 
posturing for the sake of pleasing U.S. politicians, which is what a lot of Canadian foreign policy is. So that's that's what I that's what I mean. So the the purpose, the effect, these are these are how you evaluate any act, including a speech act, including a tweet. Right. All you can do is say, okay. You know what are my intentions in doing this, and what are the what are the likely effects? That's how Chomsky or you know any moral philosopher might evaluate. There's it's either the intent, the means, or the or the effect. Those are the only three ways you can evaluate the moral aspects of a decision you could you could make, an action that you could take. And so, on that score, if you're trying to do something that's morally good, um, you you have to look at the consequences of your acts, uh, the possible consequences of your acts. And that's where it me- it means that, you know, criticizing things like human rights abuses, if you want to use that framework, should be based on the community that you're a part of and that you have some say in. Right. And everything you just said about Canada could be said exponentially more about the United States. And when we hear U.S. politicians comment on things like human rights in China or human rights in Iran, the most obvious thing ever that shouldn't even have to be said, but it needs to be said, is that the United States foreign policy is not guided by human rights. And there's only about a million examples, but, you know, the United States supports 73 percent of the world's dictatorships. (laughs) <laughs> you know, right. in, in Iran specifically, uh, the United States supported the Shah, a king, yeah. who Amnesty yeah. International documented did all kinds of torture and uh, executions of political dissidents. Currently, the United States supports basically every last monarchy on the planet. And this idea that the United States is motivated by human rights concerns is, is it, it's so ridiculous it should be laughed out of the room. And yet we still have people like Anthony Blinken, talk, uh, our Secretary of State here in the United States, talking about his grave concern for human rights in places like Iran and China and so on and so forth. So I I do want to read what you said. You pretty much covered this idea just now of Mm -hmm. meaningful dissent, but I do want to read it, uh, what you actually said about it. You said, as usual, the starting point is Chomsky. One of his moral truisms is that only, it is only moral to campaign on issues you can affect. The moral truism is implicitly about the politics of dissent. A dissenter goes against the common sense of their own society or against the government policy of their own country. That's pretty much saying that like, you as an American, you as a Canadian, you have no ability to affect the government of China. You have no ability to affect the government of Iran or Venezuela. What you do have the ability to do, in theory, is influence your own government, uh, whether that be through the democratic process or not, or just influencing people. But I'll take it a step further, Justin. I think you did articulate this as well in the tweet. If you're a person of any influence, and that can be just you know the parent of a child or, or like myself and, and yourself, uh, an educator, if you spend time manufacturing this anger, manufacturing consent to quote Chomsky, <clears throat> what you're doing is you're increasing the likelihood that your government is going to take a, an extremely violent action against, say, Iran, because your population has been uh, made to believe that those countries deserve to be attacked. Uh, so I'll, I'll move yeah. us forward here, but... So last couple of questions on this topic, we'll, we'll address some counter arguments. So how would you respond to the claim that if someone is really, truly an internationalist, then they should care about the abuses 
of all people, be they in enemy countries or allied countries uh, or your own country? It's not wrong. Like, of course, you're concerned about people everywhere and you have to be concerned about people everywhere. Uh, the, the point is, what, it, what effect is it going to have? So if you, you could be like the, Chomsky always brings this up where he says, you know, we could also talk about the crimes of Attila the Hun, right? Like the things that the things that Genghis Khan did in in China, in Afghanistan, in Iran, in you know all over all over Asia were horrific. I mean, apparently there were piles of skulls that were made as demonstrations. Like there were horrific crimes that would make you feel really bad. But what's the point of talking about it? What do you what What are the consequences in today's world of having a seminar on the crimes of Genghis Khan. There will be no justice for Genghis Khan. There will be no uh, stopping Genghis Khan from committing his next mass. That he's not going to be committing any more crimes. Uh, that was 800 years ago, and, and it's not that different if if it's some country that's on the other side of the world. I mean, look, we're a global integrated world, right? It you know it even makes sense to say that you're an internationalist. The coincidence is that you seem to be only concerned about crimes in countries that are targeted by the US. Why, why is that? Like if you're a real citizen, like I have yet to find one of these citizens of the world that has a balanced portfolio of criticism. And this is one of the gotchas that anti-imperialists will do. They'll, they'll find somebody who's criticizing Xinjiang or China and Xinjiang, and then they'll search their Twitter timeline for criticisms about Yemen or Gaza, and, and then they'll show the, you know, your search turned up no results, right? So if you're like, if you're one of these internationalists that's really, truly, you know, a citizen of the world, um, I want to see how, you know, I suppose you should have by population, you know, maybe two thirds of your criticism should be of China, you know, <laughs> I don't know, one fifth should be of the US. Uh, however you divide it, that's what I want to see. I want to see, I want to see it done that way. On the, the other, the other element of no such person exists, right? And there's a reason no such person exists. The reason that no such person exists is because the sources of information for your opinions that you have found, your truly internationalist opinions, are being driven and steered uh, in the direction that the U.S. wants you to go. So I have never met a balanced portfolio internationalist dissenter, and such a dissenter couldn't exist because there is no balanced portfolio of information that you could construct that's not already polluted by propaganda. So like the Associated Press, Reuters, and then the major media houses of the world on which every other media in the world depend, those are also imperialist propaganda. Like those are also, you know, even when there are good reporters, even when they're doing their best to be fair and objective, they are, you know, they're going to end up writing about imperial priorities. So, um, you, you, you can't, oh, and there's one more, well, there's another, yet another point. 
Another point about this hypothetical internationalist is, even if you were a hypothetical internationalist that's truly balanced, in this world, most of the damage is being done by the U.S. empire too, anyway. Like, um, you know, post-2001, I was looking at an estimate yesterday, uh, you know, probably U.S. wars have killed five to seven million people post-2001, the war on terror wars. Displaced, according to one study recently, 37 million people. Yeah, and 37 million, I think, was the low end. I, That's the low end. Yeah, so yeah, it could be as high as so, close to 60 million. So it, so how many how many people has Chinese genocide in Xinjiang killed? You know, how many people has Chinese genocide, which genocide usually results in massive amounts of displacement. There should be, you know, if, if it's a pattern, like even the Syrian civil war, which, um, you know, was more two-sided than most people admit in the sense that 100,000 Syrian soldiers were killed in fighting. They didn't just up and die. They were, there were people fighting them with weapons, some of which were supplied by the CIA, CIA etc. Um, civil, that civil war produced massive numbers of refugees. Lots of them were fleeing the government. Lots of them were fleeing the rebels, right? They fled to Turkey. They fled to Lebanon. There's refugees all over the region. Xinjiang doesn't even, you know... There's no refu there's not like huge refugee flights, right? So how like the num even if you're just like I'm a citizen of the world and I'm concerned with the numbers, the numbers tell you you have to you have to deal with the US. The US is the the most damaging, the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today, as Martin Luther King said. Right. As we as we're speaking here on the day after the anniversary of Martin Luther King's death, uh, it's April fifth, and Martin Luther King was killed April fourth, nineteen sixty. He was killed by Russian agents, right? Oh no, <laughs> yes. no, sorry, he was killed by. They're uh, accusing him of being a Russian influenced person. Right. right. Uh, so you you bring up a lot of really good points, and to for us who study these things or care about these things, it should be really obvious. Like, how can the United States care about? claim they care about rights of Syrians, they're supporting Saudi Arabia next door. They're supporting Saudi Arabia's genocide in Yemen, plus Saudi Arabia's yep. oppression of its own people, along with Bahrain and yep. in Egypt. And there's literally hundreds of examples, if not thousands. And a, a good book about this is James Peck. He wrote a book called Ideal Illusions, where oh, very good. this whole human rights narrative mm-hmm. was manufactured during the Cold War to... Mm-hmm as a propaganda campaign against the Soviet Union and its allies. And, it, you know, and, and it's how you can talk about the 1980s when the United States was assisting Central American countries in commit, committing genocide against their own populations in Guatemala and to a lesser extent in El Salvador and to funding terrorists in the Contras in Nicaragua. But the United States population and the U.S. media will focus on a few Soviet dissidents who are being mistreated or sometimes mm-hmm. jailed or killed, but the, the numbers just don't stack up. And, yeah. you know, it, and of course, it never works the other way. There's something really funny happened this week. I don't know if you caught this. China put out a human rights report on the United States. Uh, oh, cool. Yeah, Good on like, them. <laughs> world's largest incarcerator. He talked about yeah. how many for-profit prisons there are. And, you know. Yeah. And, and, no, it's, it's important. It's important to get some to get the idea that this is a different world now that like, you know, it's not, it, there, you can, you, there are, it's, 
it's possible to look critically at what the U.S. is doing from a different point of view, like from a different country. Right. That's good. If you are just being objective, like you said, is there a bigger crime of the 21st century than the invasion of Iraq? Is there a bigger crime next to that uh, when you compare uh, second on the list, if not first on the list, would be what the U.S. has done in Yemen? There's not many crimes greater than that. I can't think of any committed by other countries. Uh, Is there a greater crime in the second half of the 20th century than the war in South Asia? Uh, Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia. And, you know, the the reason Americans don't think about this is because our media doesn't cover it. They don't emphasize it. It's not, you know, human rights violations, if that's your goal, you're going to find them. Governments, all governments. Yeah, exactly. That's not to say they don't actually make it up sometimes. They do make them up all the time. But if you're looking for them, you can find them for any country. Yeah, like they they have pictures of of prisoners, you know, Chinese prisoners and Chinese prisons. And it's like, yeah, China has prisons, you know? China has prisons and China has prisoners. These, it's not nice to be a prisoner. Like, no, you know, it's your human rights are taken away when you're a prisoner. There's no question about that, right? But it's like, again, proportion. What, is it, what, what does it mean to be an American who's railing against the Chinese prison system? Like, it's, it's a ridiculous thing to do in America where, you know, your, your prison system is, yeah, the largest in the world. And, you know, yeah. Or accusing Iraq or Syria of using chemical weapons when you're a country that destroyed Vietnam's environment with chemical weapons, yeah. napalm, Agent Orange. And I'll stop because it, it drives me crazy. But I do want to move us forward because you made a really good point uh, toward the end of your tweet. So you make this interesting point in your, your thread where you remind the alleged uh, self-proclaimed anti-imperialist or dissenter that if they can identify that we live in a world where in the balance of powers overwhelmingly yeah. shifted in the favor of the U.S. and the West more broadly, then they should also predict logically that there's also a disparity in the ability to project propaganda right. between, say, the United States and Venezuela, Syria, etc., uh, can you explain what you mean by this, this balance of, of propaganda and where it would come yeah. from? Yeah, in fact, that particular thought uh, came from when I was studying uh, the Congo, actually, the 60s, 1960s so-called Congo crisis, when uh, I think it was a book I was reading called The Assassination of Patrice Lumumba, which is a very good book by a guy named Ludo de Witte, D-E-W-I-T-T-E. And he was just talking about like how at one point when Lumumba and um, the other guy, Kasavubu, uh, ousted each other, they both declared, you know, you're no longer the president. Lumumba as prime minister said, you're no longer the president. Kasavubu as president said, you're no longer the prime minister to, to Lumumba. And so Kasavubu had, you know, the entire Belgian apparatus at his disposal. Um, you know, so he was able to telegraph and radio and and had secretaries and whatever else he needed. And Lumumba, uh, Duvite says that at one point Lumumba was typing up his own memos. Like, so this guy who was the elected prime minister of, you know, the second largest country in Africa was sitting at his typewriter uh, typing out his own his own messages like um that's like 
there's no there was no leader probably he was the only leader in the world in that situation right like at that point i mean he was in the process of being overthrown but like it just tells you like it's not just that the us has all the missiles right like that's not how imperialism works it's not just the missiles and the tanks and the aircraft carriers it's also the ability to communicate it's also the ability to put a message you know a, a youtube message or a algorithm or a text or whatever in front of every eyeball in the world and that works right so like a dramatic example is how people this anti-asian racism we were just talking about like three or four years ago the majority of americans had a favorable view of china and today they have an unfavorable view of China. And that's just, China hasn't changed. China hasn't done anything differently than they've been doing. Uh, it's purely propaganda and propaganda works. Um, repetition, ubiquity, the same messages, and they're very sophisticated with this too, right? Like they have labs and like the amount of money spent on advertising, the amount of money spent on political campaigns, the amount of money spent on presidential campaigns is immense. It's hundreds of billions of dollars a year. And to think that if you think that the ability to spend on propaganda doesn't matter, you believe then that all the people doing this the wealthiest and most powerful people in the world that are spending this amount of resources on propaganda. They're idiots and you're the smart one because you you don't think propaganda matters. <laughs> like, of course propaganda matters. Of course propaganda works. Um, they would not be doing it otherwise. So, yes. you know, yeah, the, the ability to project power in, in an, an empire's ability to project power has included for centuries the ability to project your account of events, your story, your narrative um, of what's what's unfolding. Uh, yeah. And that's, yeah, that's a key to the whole thing. Yeah, it's so well said, and I'll just read part of your tweet. Where you say, if you accept the, that the globally connected world is asymmetric, imperial and white to be specific, one of these asymmetries means the uh, sorry is the means of communications and informations that is to say propaganda and i think that's a really good point and you know this extends as well to even entertainment or especially entertainment yeah right? absolutely entertainment the pentagon the cia when we even had someone on to talk about this the cia pentagon they edit movie uh, movie scripts they yeah. uh, you know it's a it's an access thing uh tom seckers the guy that really he's an expert on this but uh and he's at spyculture.com but but absolutely extends so far and i'll tell you a quick anecdote because i'm an educator as i mentioned we had to sit through this this workshop about cyber warfare and about it was basically Pentagon propaganda. It was like the the Russians are doing this, and this is why kids need to be worried about their social media and how they could be targeted with influence campaigns that are foreign made. And I was the only one in the in the presentation, not because other people might not have thought of this, but probably because most people weren't paying attention. But it just infuriated me so much. I was just like, are we to believe that Russia is doing this to the United States, and the United States, the most highly funded military in history doesn't do this to Russia? 
you know, the United States made a fake Twitter for Cuba <laughs> a few years ago. Like, are we really to believe that the scrappy upstart United States is just falling behind the dangerous Russian? And it's, Plucky. Right. And, it's, you know, and obviously people believe it because people still believe that Russia hacked the 2016 election. Uh, yeah. and, you know, but despite all the work that, you know, Aaron Maté, Matt Taibbi have exposed this stuff and many other mm-hmm. great journalists I don't have time to name. And it works. And you're exactly right. Yeah. There is a disparity. And the last thing I'll ask you about, I do want to really talk to you about Rwanda and the DRC. Uh, you know, something that an argument that you will come across or I will come across anyone who voicing this message is going to receive at some point is, well, if we listen to people like you, this is a hypothetical person talking. The U.S. would have never entered the war against Nazism in World War II. Now, now me, I, I would say that's a gross misunderstanding of World War II and the Holocaust. But how would you respond to that? Oh, dear. Well, you, okay, you David, David Swanson to, has a really good book, uh, Leaving on, World yeah, War II Behind. You've had him on, yeah. Okay, good. Yeah, I just, I bought it. I, I would flip through it. I haven't read it in detail. Um, but, um, okay, here's here's one thing. Here's one thing. I have I have had this argument <laughs> And uh, people are usually shocked just by the numbers of World War II. Like, U.S. casualties uh, in World War II, military killed, 300,000. Russian casualties, military killed, 8 million. Civilians killed, 13.6 million. Sorry, the 8.6 million. I don't want to erase 0.6 million people that way. So who won World War II? The Soviet Union won World War II. The Soviet Union defeated the Nazis. So, um, you know, would, would the Soviet Union have not, you know, have not entered World War II because they were listening to anti-imperialists? I don't, I mean, they didn't, they, the Nazis invaded Russia. They had no choice. It was not a war of choice. Most of what the U.S. did in World War II was fighting in the West, uh, fighting in Japan, I mean, fighting against Japan um, in the Pacific. And, you know, they managed to commit the biggest crime of the war um, doing it, despite being on the right side of it. Or arguably even in world history. I I assume you're talking about the atomic bombs. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, dropping the atomic bombs. So, um, yeah, World War II, unfortunately, does not, you know, doesn't really go... Arguments about World War II that are based on history don't really go so well for imperialists, honestly. It's just the history doesn't doesn't play in that favor. And, you know, then then there's, like, books like The Coming of the American Behemoth or Hitler's American Model that show all the connections ideologically between like how, how much the Nazis were influenced by uh, the scientific racism and um, you know, the apartheid practices that were practiced in the U S the one drug, you know, the, the book um, Hitler's American model, it actually says that some of the U S laws, when they, when the Nazis sat down to write the Nuremberg laws, they thought some of, the U.S. laws were too extreme for them. Like they were like, we can't apply the one-drop rule. That's ridiculous. That'll never work in in Germany. Yeah, it requires an incredible amount of just ignoring the 
prior to World War II period where U.S. corporations supported the Nazis, uh, IBM, yeah. right up through the war itself yeah. and the Holocaust itself. Uh, yeah, and you're absolutely right. We're, ironically, I'm teaching World War II currently to my students. We're on spring break now, but we'll finish when we get back. But we open it up with... United States is not an anti-fascist country. If anything, exactly. you can exactly. isolate that four-year period maybe and say, well, all right, well, they fought fascists then. But both before World War II and after World War II, the United States had no problem supporting fascism, including uh, in- including official NATO members. Portugal was a fascist state until the 1970s. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and then uh, relating back to your imperialism point, and you could say this for World War One as well, certainly a war between imperial powers, but mm-hmm. World War Two, why did the United States enter World War Two? And, you know, kids will say, Well well, they wanted to stop Nazis and they wanted to stop the concentration camps and the Holocaust. And that has nothing to do with it. There was no mention of the Holocaust, there was no mention of concentration camps. And where was the United States attacked? Was it attacked in New York City? Was it attacked <laughs> in Washington DC? The United States was attacked in Hawaii, Guam, the Philippines, and Wake Island. What the hell was the United States doing? <laughs> what was the US Navy doing in Pearl Harbor? And then you gotta like, look at this, like, the United States fought a genocidal war in the Philippines just 40 yeah. years earlier. The United yeah. States did a coup in Hawaii. The United States conquered exactly. Guam, Wake Island. And it's like, obviously it's a counterfactual, but would World War II have even happened were it not for U.S. and more broadly Western imperialism? And yeah, well, certainly World War I wouldn't have happened if it weren't for imperialism, and World War II wouldn't have happened without World War I. Right. So, yeah, probably it wouldn't have. Yeah, yeah. and you know, it's it's, good... it, it erases this, you know, U.S. as the protagonist notion when it comes to mm-hmm. the Holocaust and World War II. And speaking of genocides that are politically useful to imperialists. We're going to move on to the genocide that occurred in Rwanda in the 1990s because you wrote this great book that I'm tearing through at the moment and I cannot recommend it enough. Uh, It's called America's Wars on Democracy in Rwanda and the DR Congo. and you open it up with this amazing alternate history where with a 95-year-old Patrice Lumumba speaking to a crowd of Congolese citizens. and I just before we get into like the Congo and Rwanda, well, who was Patrice Lumumba? Uh, you know, why did you choose to start the book like this? And you know, unfortunately, your version of things was purposely contrasting with reality. So, what is the reality of what happened to him? Yeah. So Patrice Lumumba was the uh, leader of the independence movement in the DR Congo, the Democratic Republic of Congo. Uh, in the late 50s when when Congo became independent of Belgium. And he was uh, very briefly the prime minister of, uh, of the Congo uh, before he was overthrown, uh, assassinated uh, by Belgians with the help of the US and the UK and... Uh, you know, all the imperialist powers. Um, he was, the Belgians wanted to uh, allow, I mean, under the duress of the anti-colonial movements of the, you know, 50s, 60s, Belgium wanted to turn Congo into an apartheid. You know, they, their kind of model was uh, South Africa. And Patrice Lumumba wanted, you know, to create a black republic that was democratic 
that was, you know, in control where, you know, this huge population would be in control of its own resources. And that was for that crime, uh, you know, the United States organized and orchestrated his overthrow um, at the highest levels of U.S. decision making through their CIA agent, you know, Lawrence Devlin, but through their allies, the Belgians and the British uh, with bigger colonial footprints there. So <clears throat> Lumumba, had he been allowed to live, um, had he not been assassinated, I believe that, um, you know, the Congo and the history of Africa would have been completely different. And that those, all of those differences are what I lay out in his speech that I imagined him making in the, in the book, um, in the opening chapter. And then I go on in the book to show what actually happened um, after his death. And just the, the reason that I, the reason that I started it that way was I, I kept, I originally wanted the book to explain what happened with the, in the Congo war from 1996 to 2003. And I didn't, I hadn't found a good explanation of what the U S footprint was in that war. But then I had to go back to the Rwanda genocide. And then I had to go back to the war in Uganda. And then I had to go back to what had been going on in the Congo with Mobutu. And then I had to go back further to how Mobutu got put in place. And it went all the way back to independence and Lumumba. And I kind of realized that that story had to be told as one story from Lumumba to the present. Yeah, I really like that you started the book like that. And I also really thought it was interesting, the use of this dynamic you have put together uh, that many well-intentioned people use this thing that you call the traumatized narrative. Well, you know, if you, and that's to say uh, people will tend to explain the uh, often horrific issues that exist on the African continent today, and they'll blame... Uh, partly justifiably, but, uh, but you would say incompletely, it sounds like, they blame European colonialism, you know, the Berlin Conference, uh, the mm -hmm. horrific, violent, mass-murdering, genocidal colonization, colonization of Africa in the 19th century. Yeah. But you offer, and I, you know, I'm not through the book yet, but uh, it seems like your thesis is that is a very incomplete narrative, and it exonerates some of the most culpable players in this situation. Uh, can you explain yeah. why you say that's incomplete? Yeah, so it, it's a lot like it's a lot like a lot of liberal arguments today, in the sense that the answer is that liberals can give there is they say, well, you know, we need to forget about the past, and when you think about it, it's like. The truth is, this is not the past. We're not talking about the past. The issue in the DRC and in Rwanda is an ongoing issue. It's not colonialism, it's neocolonialism. Um, it's, it's what's going on right now. It's the, it's like, the DRC does not have sovereignty right now. Uh, for that matter, you know, the people of Rwanda also um, don't, you know, don't have a lot of meaningful say in what happens. Um, and that's because of the U.S. It's not because of, you know, the Belgians. It's not because the people of... So 
like the idea with the traumatized Africa is, you know, the Belgians, they were so mean to the Congolese that it screwed up the Congolese minds and the Congolese can't govern themselves now. So ultimately, however you get to that point, the conclusion is always that Africans can't govern themselves. Like that's, therefore, we have to do, uh, we have to run Africa for them. So however you get there, I don't really care anymore because I'm in favor of sovereignty. You know, I'm, I'm, I believe in national sovereignty for these countries. So that's the reason that I take on these different arguments because it's like whether you're sensitive about it or you're racist about it, if your conclusion is that Africans can't govern themselves, then you're on the wrong side uh, on this one and you're on the wrong side of neocolonial, of neocolonialism. And you call attention to the fact that the narrative doesn't even make sense. So you can be against and you can call attention to how horrific European colonialism is and was, I should say, and continues to be in neocolonialism. But that doesn't, it's not a full explanation as to why, you know, Japan and Germany were completely destroyed after World War II. And yet both countries are far more successful in terms of most measurable uh, uh, measures that we could do compared to Central Africa. And, exactly. You know, and the thing is about this is it allows narratives like someone like Samantha Power, uh, I believe she's going to be either is or is going to be the head of USAID. Uh, and she's she wrote this book. You're probably familiar with it. I'm sure you've criticized it before. It's called well, she has two that are just from hell. Yeah, problem from hell, and her other one is the education of an idealist. I have not read either of them. I've mostly just read criticisms of them. But I, yeah. I, I think I know her thesis. Basically, is that the United States in the Rwandan genocide sat back and did nothing, and therefore. The lesson is that the United States needs to confront problems like human rights violations up to genocide with its its military. Uh, so the United States needs to violently confront people who are going to be committing genocide. So I know this is a sensitive topic, but I, I think it's important to discuss because like the Holocaust, the U.S. has developed this fictional narrative about Rwanda where the, yeah. the worst thing you can say about the U.S. is that it sat by and did nothing. Uh, yeah. They failed to act. Uh, and as a genocide was committed by the Hutus, an ethnic group against the other ethnic group, the Tutsis. Uh, and of course, the lesson w is that from now on, the United States needs to get involved whenever the threat of genocide is occurring. But the whole basis, the whole foundation of that, from what I've read of you, from you and from yeah. some other people, is that the whole foundation of that is flawed. It's a bad understanding of the Rwandan yeah. genocide. So uh, can you complete the story for us? Uh, like, who, who is Paul yeah. Kagame? Uh, yeah. What does Samantha Power not understand about the Rwandan genocide? Give us a little more. I think Samantha here. Power understands quite a lot, by the way. <laughs> it's not, her problem. I doubt her problem is understanding. But um, here's the thing: the Kagame uh, was in the Ugandan military, um, and he was an intelligence officer under the person who's still president of Uganda, uh, Museveni, in what's called the Bush War in Uganda in the 80s, um, developed a series of very efficient 
methods that helped Museveni get into power, including uh, assassin, you know, assassinating officers. And, you know, they were very uh, tactically capable. They studied in the U.S. Kagame uh, studied at Leavenworth, actually, um, uh, particularly like information and uh I don't think they call it propaganda, but they, you know, modern warfare methods. Um, and they invaded Rwanda in 1990, took over a part of Rwanda, Ruhengeri, uh, where a lot of food is produced, displaced hundreds of thousands of people from that part of Rwanda. Um, and then uh, well, there was a negotiation, a peace agreement that was um, held that forced the government of Rwanda to accept elections. Um, elections which probably the president, Habyarimana, the president that Kagame was trying to overthrow in the war, he probably would have won. Um, so Habyarimana was assassinated in 1994 through a similar kind of missile attack that killed some of Kagame and Museveni's enemies in Uganda uh, in the 80s. Um, lots of evidence points to Kagame uh, as the person who launched that missile and started the war for complete control of Rwanda, which was successful in the process of that war. The genocide against Tutsis, Tutsis who lived in Rwanda was committed. Um, you know, hundreds of thousands of Tutsis were killed by uh, militias, uh, organized militias. Um, and, uh, and then, in, but in the, and in the process of the war, uh, one, of, one of these, one of the outcomes of which was this genocide, uh, Kagame ended up in charge. And Kagame also massacred tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of Hutus, also Tutsis, um, en route to power and in the year following the takeover. So the story is really, um, that has a lot of parts. I describe it in a chapter, chapter nine of my book. Uh, it has all of these events, uh, lots of detail, lots of footnotes, so you can follow the whole story. You may need to read it a couple of times. Um, it took me a long time to write this, uh, but you know, from chapter nine to chapter, I guess, 13, it's, it's basically about Rwanda. Um, and it's about these events. So, um, the whole time, that whole process, uh, from you, from the invasion via Uganda to the arming in Uganda, to the organization of the uh, so-called Rwandan Patriotic Front, to intelligence, satellite information, the United States was backing Kagame to the hilt. And so was the United Nations through a Canadian officer, Romeo Dallaire, who was in charge of the Rwandan mission at the time. So the, the U.S. very much intervened. The U.S. did what the U.S. does in many, many, many cases, which is they have uh, they provide intelligence, support, um, diplomatic cover, uh, all, all of these suite of services for their chosen uh, ground force. You know, the U.S. doesn't often like to field armies anymore to do things. But they, um, you know, they do like to have ground forces 
to actually do the invading and occupying of countries. So, you know, why the U.S. did it, you know, there are specific reasons. But, you know, if you consider that the U.S. believes that it owns the world and likes to be in control of everything everywhere, that's basically the simplest explanation. There are specific geopolitical reasons and so on, uh, political reasons in terms of what was going on in Africa at the time with movements for more multi-party representation and democratic representation. But that's the... That's the situation. So it has nothing, it has absolutely nothing to do with a failure to intervene. Uh, It had, it has everything to do with um, the nature of the intervention, the characters on behalf of whom the U.S. intervened and what those actors did and what, um, you know, what their enemies did. And like, Kagame had a battle plan. One last word on the genocide. Kagame had a battle plan that involved a fairly methodical encirclement of the capital city, Kigali. Um, And they were displacing people along the way. So the Hutu population was fleeing. I mean, the entire population was fleeing. The the population was fleeing ahead of Kagame's army. Um, You know, a battle... The, during that time, the Rwandan government, which ended up, you know, in fleeing, uh, uh, fleeing also in the face of uh, Kagame's forces, they repeatedly said, you know, if we have a truce, we can actually stop these militias from killing uh, our Tutsi population. And Kagame refused the truce. You know, Kagame was, why would Kagame do a truce? He was going to win. He was winning the war, right? So they, they, you know, the, the, the Hutu government, I mean, it wasn't a Hutu government. I shouldn't even say that. That's a propaganda term. The, the, the government of Rwanda that was in the process of being overthrown um, was not, like, they argued that the genocide was happening, the massacres, you know, that amounted to genocide was happening because of a breakdown in their ability to uh, stop these militias. So it wasn't like the, a lot hinges on this question. Was it was it the government that was doing this, or was it a you know a kind of a chaotic loss of control by the government that resulted in the genocide? Right. So if it if you if it was a loss of control by the government, then those repeated uh, requests for a truce, um, the fact that the Rwandan government sent its troops to the front uh, to fight Kagame's uh, forces unsuccessfully over and over again um, leads to the conclusion or provides evidence for the conclusion that it was more of a breakdown of law and order that led to the genocide than, uh, you know, the government centrally organizing a genocide. So... There were the point, all of which is to say, um, in the early stages of the genocide, uh, the Paul Kagame had opportunities to uh, do things that would be militarily costly, but genocide, pre- you know, preventing that he did not do. And then in the second phase, uh, when there was when the United Nations was trying to argue for a the insertion of a larger force, the so-called UNAMIR two, again all detailed in my book. Uh, again, Kagame argued no, absolutely not, because such a force would obviously have 
um, stopped him from the military conquest of the country. So there were several points during which genocide could have been pre prevented or at least hundreds of thousands of lives could have been saved and Kagame refused at every turn because his priority was military conquest. And I don't, I, you know, Kagame is one person. But the point is, this is this was Kagame's policy is US policy. Um. Right. So if I'm understanding this correctly, because I, I, I know it's complicated, but the Rwanda, what we call the Rwandan genocide, this horrible, tra tragic event where roughly 800,000 Tutsis were killed happens in the larger context of a war that was initiated by yeah. a U.S. Proxy, by the U.S. Paul Kagame. Yeah. And, you know, in that context, you know, these are ethnic conflicts. And this goes back even to when the Belgians controlled the country. I believe you, mm -hmm. you say that they had traditionally, in a divide-and-conquer way, mm -hmm. elevated the Tutsis in the social hierarchy. And mm -hmm. after, of course, if we're not going to go with the traumatized narrative, but you can't ignore that yeah. the Tutsis had, had historically been uh, elevated in the social hierarchy. And then in the, in the invasion by Tutsi forces, Paul, Paul Kagame, uh, we see the civil war take place starting in 1990 and culminating with the Rwandan, yeah. what we call the Rwandan genocide. But of course, to just look at the Rwandan genocide out of context, that's how you arrive at the conclusion that it sounds like you're saying nefariously she arrived at, but but that's how mm -hmm. people believe Samantha Power's conclusion that the United States' greatest sin was doing nothing and not that the United States yeah. was directly complicit in the events that led to this happening. And and as we close out, I'll, I'll point people back to another episode we did with uh, Daryl Lee where he said to us something really instructive. Uh, and he said to us, if you just look at the U.S. empire as in the actions of the U.S. military or the U or CIA agents, you're mm -hmm. ignoring about 90% of the iceberg. It's typically through, yeah. as you said, proxies like Kagame yeah. in Uganda and Rwanda in the Congo, uh, yeah. or you know, proxies in Syria or uh, Nicaragua, yeah. so on and so forth. So it's really it's this influence over other violent forces around the planet, and exactly. yeah, so. Uh, as we close out, you know, I, I mentioned this before the podcast, but so John and I are both high school educators. Uh, we have argued in the past that things like Rwanda, things like the Holocaust are really important to learn about. But the idea that high school curriculums traditionally only focus on those genocides doesn't really do a lot of work in preventing future atrocities, but it's really more of a power serving self-congratulatory mm -hmm. narrative for children who go to school in the United States. We've we've argued uh, that schools, if they were really serious about teaching about genocide, we would emphasize the genocides that the United States, and in your case, Canada, would were directly complicit, i.e. the Native American genocide, the genocide in Indonesia, East Timor, Cambodia, Guatemala, Bangladesh, arguably Yemen now, and Iraq in the 1990s. Um, how do you feel about this? Are we as educators, I'm talking collectively, not, I'm sure there are great teachers, but are we collectively as educators failing to really educate people about, about genocide if the focus is primarily on the Holocaust and to a lesser extent, the Rwandan genocide? Absolutely. Yeah, I think you're completely right. Um, I think that, I think that what I'm realizing especially going back to the opium war, um, you know, the campaign 
uh, the so-called mutiny, uh, the Indian mutiny of 1857, in which the British actually killed millions of India. I mean, that was also a genocidal war in 1857 against India by the British imperialists. And um, what I'm realizing is there always is a humanitarian justification. Always for hundreds and like imperialism is always humanitarian. When they were doing the so-called scramble for Africa and Leopold was taking over the Congo, um, they argued that it was an anti-slavery initiative. They said they were going into Africa to stop slavery. That was their whole uh, thing. They were like, you know, we abolished slavery in the 18, early 1800s and the, this backward region continues to do this, this horrible thing. And we're going to have to take over and rule it uh, colony, you know, as a colony to stop slavery. They, uh, the Opium War, you know, there was a free trade thing, but there was also lots of interest in foot binding and other kinds of backwards practices in, in India. Of course, uh, they were outlawing sati, which is like a practice where the widow, you know, jumps on, you know, is burned on the funeral pyre with her husband. So these are terrible practices. Chinese and, you know, Asian reformers, uh, lots of Africans were against um, all of these practices. But the point is, whenever there's imperialism, there's always a humanitarian justification. So right now, the, the signal that, we're getting ready to do some kind of intervention or we have one underway is that we, we need to prevent genocide. Like the genocide in particular is like activate, you know, because if it's a genocide, if there's a genocide is going on, we've got to, you know, what, what can't you do? What can't be justified in the name of preventing genocide? Genocide is the worst thing that could possibly be done. So you can do anything short of that to stop it, presumably. Maybe even, you know, maybe even, you know, revenge or preemption or whatever. So, yeah, so absolutely um, you have to, you have to analyze again the actions of these Western countries, you know, in this, by the same standards. That's the Chomsky, that's the Chomsky truism, right? It's uh, the standards that you apply to others also have to apply to you, to you. Um, and yeah. So if you're if you're taking, yeah, if you're taking examples that were not committed, like yeah, like the 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 indigenous example is the most striking for me, um, at, probably because it's Canada. But like the idea that they're there should be a, a Holocaust museum and not a museum to the about the genocide of Native Americans or, you know, like, so, yeah, this, it just, it just makes you doubt the sincerity of the anti-genocide claim, right? Yeah. And when you take the view, which I think is accurate, that if we say there are probably six major genocides that have happened since the Holocaust, yeah. The West doesn't really have a role of having tried to stop them. More accurately, right. the United States particularly was directly complicit in them. And yeah. it changes the narrative of we need to do something when genocide's happening as to maybe we need to do less harm in the world. You know, first do yeah. no harm is the official rule. Yeah. And, you know, the humanitarian thing you mentioned is, 
it's almost comical. Like you hear now, we can't leave Afghanistan. We, the, the United States can't leave yeah. Afghanistan because women will be harmed. Because that, as if that's a primary motivator of U.S. Yeah. policy. You know, the United States couldn't change the treatment of women in Afghanistan when they had 100,000 troops in the country. You know, yeah. and at the same time, the United States allies with Saudi Arabia, the most oppressive place in the world for women. And, you know, I, I like that you said that. There's literally no case in the last 200 years of imperialism where yeah. there wasn't a humanitarian yeah. motivate alleged yeah. motivation um, mask. I was actually I was actually surprised to find that with the opium war. I didn't know it was that strong of a propaganda. You know, I, I always thought that you need more propaganda when you have more when the population has more rights. But somehow I suppose the the 19th century in the 19th century Britain, the population did have some power. So they were pretty heavily propagandized too on foreign policy. Yeah, if you remember in like 2006, 2007, the the United States almost went to war with Iran. And this is one of those near misses that has occurred a bunch of times. And we were allegedly supposed to be very concerned about the rights of homosexuals and women in Iran. (laughs) It's like, this is the Bush administration. You came to power. On right. you know anti women anti uh, right. LGBTQ uh, pro- propaganda like they right. you think they care about women's rights or gay rights? <laughs> right. Come on, like, gay rights. I can't believe they gonna, believe this. They're shit. gonna they're gonna invade right. Iran for gay rights. Yeah, but uh, Justin, before we go, it's I feel like we danced around this a little bit but your official day job you, i mean you're you do all this great work on anti-imperialism but your day job you work on environmental and urban change uh, that's what you teach uh so but i'm i'm fairly sure that those things connect right so how does your study about the environment how does your teaching about the environment and urban change do you see that as connecting to your fantastic work on anti-imperialism Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I it was always it, I've had a easier time making the connections. I used to I used to be like a scientist, um, you know, and I used to publish papers, and you know, I got a grant, and I published papers in scientific journals on forestry and forest fires. Um, but uh, yeah, I've always been interested in the deeper causes of environmental problems and it in fact i i finally started to make connections between imperialism and uh, environmental destruction like i was just uh i was just looking at like you know the there's like a there's like a malthusianism to environmental and, and the environmental movement right like the idea that there's too many people in the world and and we're like overbreeding. But if you look at the if you look at the data over time, the period of like the most rapid population growth is the period of the British like starts with the British Empire. And so and it and it corresponds and most of it was in Asia, most of it was in India and China and it corresponds to the period where the like the systems of food uh, the food system, the agricultural system famine relief were all broken down and tens of millions of people actually starved to death in famines in China and India in the 18th, I mean, in the 19th century. And, you know, perversely, famine leads to population growth, right? I mean, short term, it leads to mass death, but long term, actually, um, 
you know, there are all these mechanisms by which after a war and after a famine, um, the population often recovers to a level higher than it was before. And then there's like the way the food uh, system works globally and the American push towards cheap food. And there's a whole range of things that have to do with imperialism. Same with uh, climate change, right? Like climate change, um, CO2 emissions, mass extinctions. These are all, these all correlate temporally directly with uh, deforestation, with the, with the era of British and American imperialism. So I've been, yeah, I've been trying to figure out exactly how this, how these things, how these things work mechanistically. And increasingly, I'm increasingly convinced that uh, most of our environmental problems also trace back to imperialism. So... Right. And I think the stat is that something like 80% of carbon emissions come from just 100 corporations. Yes, exactly. Almost entirely Western based. And so, you know, you have this move that probably started when when I was a kid, maybe a a little before that, where it's on you, the individual, to not lower your carbon footprint. But the... but that, that's all good stuff. But that was a plan cooked up by like Exxon Mobil <laughs> to yeah. exonerate themselves from being the huge polluter they are. And, you know, talking about imperialism and the environment, the U.S. military yeah. is one of the largest polluters the in the world. Uh, yeah. So any conversation about environmentalism or moving toward a, uh, a renewable energy-based mm-hmm. world has to involve demilitarization. But... Yeah. Uh, Justin, it's been so great to talk to you. I, I think we're pretty much in agreement about everything, but I want to give you a chance. Uh, is there anything you'd like to plug, uh, anything you're working on? Uh, where can people find your work? Uh, yeah, anything you'd like people to know about? Um, you know, I wrote a, I wrote a novel uh, called Siege Breakers uh, about uh, people breaking the siege, basically where Palestinians, with, a, with the help of an Israeli defector, break the siege on Gaza. So, you know, I wanted to, uh, if you want, if you want a little bit of adventure, um, (laughs) an action thriller where the Palestinians are the heroes, check it out. Yeah. And and also you should definitely check out Justin's podcast, the Anti-Empire Project. Uh, You can check out his website too at the antiempireproject.com. Is it .com or .org? No, just go to podor.org. I don't don't have the URL for Anti-Empire Project. All right. You got it. Just go to my last name, podur.org. We will absolutely put that in the show notes. So that was Justin Poder. He's the author of America's Wars on Democracy in Rwanda and DR Congo. He's also the author of The Path of the Unarmed and also Siege Breakers. And he, his day job, he's an associate professor at York University's Faculty of Environmental and Urban Change. Justin, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Matt.